1: One of the challenges associated with reading the Bible the way we often do, which is to read it in chunks and bits, a chapter here and a chapter there, is that we miss the essential narrative quality of these stories. We we miss the connections and the wider context. Chapter 3 isn't a whole new story. It flows very naturally out of what happened at the end of chapter 2. In chapter 2, we were told that the early Christians were very committed to the prayers, which almost certainly means, the hours of prayer at the temple. Well, here's a story about something that happened on one of those times when they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. We were also told that many signs and wonders were being done by the apostles. Here we have an extended telling of one of those signs and wonders. So, this story is an expansion of what we've just heard. It is a specific example illustrating the general nature and flavor and power of the early church. Now, at some point, we're going to have to talk about whether these extraordinary displays of power are meant to be understood as normative for the ongoing life of the church. Some say yes, Some say if if we prayed as much as they prayed, and, and, and if we were together as much as they were together, then we would see miracles and signs and wonders just as they did. Others say no. They say that these early signs and wonders were intended by God to demonstrate his particular blessing upon the new covenant community and to demonstrate his approval of the apostolic gospel. Some say that these miracles and signs are Like the extra power, the booster rockets, you might say, that were given to to help get the early church off the ground. But then the focus is more on the ordinary work of the Spirit and the everyday life and witness of the church. That is a conversation we'll have to have at some point. But I Don't think we'll have it here. Let's just enjoy this text for what it says about the power and the blessing that was experienced by the early church and that was given by God to authenticate and approve this new covenant community, whatever else they are. These miracles are given by God as a sign of the messianic restoration that has begun in the church of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, there are a bunch of really interesting features to this story. For one thing, we notice that the apostles are still going up to the temple for prayer. It took a while for the Jewish apostles to work out all the implications of the things that Jesus had said. Jesus said that he was the new temple. John wrote that down near the end of his life in his gospel, but here they're not there yet. They're still functioning within the structures of Jewish worship, even as they are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see the church in its absolute infancy here. They are talking together, praying together, preaching together, and fleshing out together the full implications of the gospel. Jesus said he would send his Holy Spirit to help them do this very thing. Second thing we see here is that the apostles initiated this miracle. The man never asked to be healed, he asked for money. He didn't express faith, not at first, anyway. This was a sovereign act of God. In terms of sign value, I think that's very important for us to see. God always goes first. Faith responds, but if you dig deep enough, you always discover the initiative of a sovereign and merciful God. We should also notice here that the healing was immediate and complete. It didn't happen in stages and it wasn't partial in any sense he immediately started dancing and jumping about. When God does something, he does it right. And then lastly, we should note that this healing was done in such a way so as to intentionally and obviously draw attention to Holy Scripture. This healing was a fulfillment of a well-known prophecy in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, 6, it says, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The key word there obviously is then. When shall the lame man leap like a deer? That's what we want to know. And the answer comes earlier in the chapter. We are told that it will happen in a time of restoration and renewal when God visits his people, a time, according to verse 2, when people shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So, This miracle is a sign that points to the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, a glory that is obviously still at work in his church. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel! Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Again, notice that Peter himself sees this miracle as pointing to the glory of God in Christ. This isn't about Peter. It's not about the faith of the man. This is about the glory of God in Christ and the offer of renewal and restoration through Christ. That's why Peter immediately begins to preach the gospel. He tells everyone to repent. You killed the author of life, he says, so you need to deal with God about that. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, Let's just quickly notice here that Peter isn't saying that everything is renewed right now because of Christ. No, he says that Jesus is in heaven now until the time for restoring all things comes about. So we are in an in-between time, a time when restoration is assured because of Christ, and a time when signs and first fruits of that restoration may be given to point us towards Christ, but not yet a time when everything is again as it was meant to be. This world is still broken. Our bodies are still frail and fallen. We still get sick. And we can't just shout the name of Jesus at our cancer or our MS or our diabetes. Peter doesn't say that everything is restored. He says it will be. And that we can be reconciled to God now through the person of Jesus christ it's very important to hear what peter is and isn't saying in this sermon verse 22 moses said the lord god will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people Here, Peter says that Jesus is the prophet like Moses, meaning his words are the words of God. His words are the law of God. His words function like a sword. If you reject his word, then you put yourself outside the covenant community. That's what he says in verse 23. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Jesus is the sword that puts you inside or outside the covenant community. Jesus is the prophet like Moses, and Jesus is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. God said to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, Genesis twenty two eighteen. 18. The Hebrew word translated there as offspring is the Hebrew word zera, sometimes translated as seed. Now, just like in English, it is a word that can be heard as a plural or a singular, and that fact has massive theological significance. One of the most important questions you have to answer is this, who is or who are the offspring of Abraham? If you answer Israel, the Jews are the offspring of Abraham, then you have a problem because the apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ, Galatians 3.16. So according to the apostles, the offspring of Abraham ultimately is Jesus Christ, all the blessings have been earned and claimed by him. That's why Peter says at the end of his sermon, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. If you want to be blessed, if you want to share in the times of refreshing and the full future restoration of the kingdom of God, then you need to be in right relationship with the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the principle and person of blessing, renewal, and life. He is the prophet like Moses and
0: the seed of Abraham. Thanks be to God.